The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining in the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was actually eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they called out the disciples and said, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Why I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the reading of God's word this morning. Jesus didn't run projects. Jesus didn't establish ministries. Jesus didn't even put on world-class events. Jesus ate meals. Jesus recognized the natural opportunities that meals, when shared together, create for the gospel. For Jesus, doing lunch was doing theology. Meals were a big deal, and like today, symbolize friendship, intimacy, opportunity, and community. Food connects people. It brings strangers into becoming friends. Three times in the Gospels, there's a phrase that is repeated. And the phrase is this, the Son of Man came. Right? You see the first one here even in this text. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's one of the purposes he came. Mark 10.45 captures another. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Another purpose of our Savior. And then in Luke here, 7.34, there's one methodology which is a companion sort of text to this text. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And the text goes on to say, And you say, Behold, gluttonous men and a drunkard, drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He did it so often, they accused the Lord Jesus of being gluttonous. To do lunch for Jesus was to do theology. Robert Karras Remarking on Luke 7 that I just read, states this, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Meals are a big deal for Jesus and should be a big deal for the local church. Jesus' mission strategy was to have a long meal with strangers. Grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine was his best context for proclaiming the gospel, for evangelism. 
That's one of the lessons. Rick often goes to Italy, and I go to Italy myself to help a seminary there and to teach there. And all the experiences of Italy, one of the big takeaways for me is after you'd preach on a Sunday morning, you would join an Italian family in their home roughly around 1 o'clock, and you would finish lunch at about 5 o'clock. There would be multiple courses. It would be paced and sequenced. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a, a marvelous experience. And you think, well, they're just rolling out the red carpet for, for me because I'm the guest teacher that week. It's not the case. This is what they do every single week. Their culture centers around a meal, centers around uh, you know, a, a great time and community around a meal. Here in the U.S., you know, we're into quick serve. You know, you get impetuous in the drive-through if your meal doesn't come quick enough. It's, so it's about consumption, execution, getting it done. But in the first century and in Italy presently, a meal is a tremendous opportunity uh, to deploy evangelism, to share the gospel with somebody else. So much happens at the table. Some of my fondest memories as a boy, was around a table of seven, five children and my parents, and the funny things that we talk about, the, the, the rehearsing of the day, the rhythm of life, the spewing of milk and a funny joke all over, you know, your brother. I mean, just some of the fond memories when we gather together now as adults, you know, it always seems to go back to a meal or a time we were eating together or, or, or an incident. And I, I'm sure you have those same kind of uh, fond memories yourself. As a matter of fact, to bring it a little bit stronger, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. He had offended the scribes and the Pharisees, as you see in this text, which sets them in opposition to him. And this is one of the reasons why they were so vociferous on taking his life. They couldn't imagine the rabbi, the Messiah, would sit down with tax collectors and sinners and share a meal uh, with these guys. This is crazy. This morning, we get to join Jesus in this hour over a meal. I want you to see how he ate. I want you to see who he ate with. I want you to experience what he experienced in the first century. It's just such a meal. This meal before us gives us insight, a window into the message of amazing grace. Now, to the outside, it was scandalous. To those at the table, it was certainly amazing grace. And my hopes this morning is my hope is that it would teach us how to use our homes and how to use meals for times for the gospel. Listen, the table is a very ordinary place. But we all can aptly apply our tables, our homes, and our meals towards the gospel. That's the challenge this morning, to pivot and to start seeing our homes as a mission field and our backyards as a place to barbecue and have people over who don't know Christ and to have an opportunity to sit down with them and say, I'd like to tell you about the most important person in my life and to proclaim Christ. And so I think this text reveals for us Jesus' threefold philosophy of ministry. This is how he did ministry. This is how he did evangelism. He was either eating a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. You just read the rhythm of the Gospels, and you will see it over and over and over again. 
So the first component of his philosophy of ministry that I want to draw your attention to in this particular text is this. You must be a friend to sinners. You must be a friend to sinners. Now, right prior to this text begins a a five-discourse section. And these discourses are a result of Jesus getting in trouble with the authorities. That is the religious authorities. So this is the context to what is going on here. He keeps getting himself in trouble, and he keeps getting asked questions. And he responds to these probing questions by the religious elite with a stunning gospel counterintuitive proverbial statement as you see at the end of this text in verse 17. So this is the section where they question, why do his disciples fast? They, they question, why does he heal on the Sabbath? So they're following Jesus around, looking to trap him. They're setting him up. They're looking for opportunity to undermine him, to question his integrity as a leader because he's got such a following. And so this is their investigative, undercover, stealth, Uh, process of trying to unwind the popularity that he has among the people. And you see this right prior to this text. Uh, It's clear he heals a paralytic man. And this blows their mind, that he'd heal a paralytic man, and then he says, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. So he heals his body, and then he heals his soul simultaneously. This blows their mind. They're like, Okay, it's one thing to heal body. We got a few voodoo people in our, of our own, but wow, this guy forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. And so he starts the declaration that he is indeed the Son of God, which is Mark's purpose for writing in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And so he deals with that section. And then we pick up here in verse 13. Check it out. And he went out again by the seashore, And all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And then he teaches them and meets this guy, Levi, here in verse 14. Now, Mark introduces, just a little bit of insight about Mark. Mark, when he writes his gospel, he introduces new topics by geographical surroundings. So he leaves Peter's house, which is located in Capernaum, and he heads out to get some fresh air at the sea, right? It's... it's, No HVAC. He wants some fresh air. He thought, let's go down by the sea, get some fresh air, clear our minds, and uh, we'll see what happens. Well, of course, wherever he goes, he draws a crowd. Whenever he draws a crowd, he takes advantage of that. And he teaches them, and he continues to teach them. Now, he keeps teaching the same crowd because he has to keep clarifying the pristine gospel. They keep confusing the, the miracles uh, with, the, with the need for new birth. They, they're pursuing him. He's checking their motives. They're pursuing him because they, they want all the fringe benefits of following this miracle worker. And he keeps readjusting and saying, no, no, it's, it's not about the miracles. I do those things. I heal. But it's really about repentance of sin and faith. And so he keeps having to reiterate and, and to separate out their motives for them. Now, on the perimeter of this crowd of people that are following him, these disciples are the religious elite. These are the people who are looking to trip him up, looking to cause him some harm, looking to question his integrity. And these folks are amazing. They are scribes and Pharisees. They write graffiti of man-made traditions on the wall of God's Word. 
So they take the, the beginning place, the Word of God, and they write graffiti. They add rules and regs all over the Word of God. It is purported that there was over 600 of these rules that were added to Scripture to kind of give people guardrails, to, to not let them think independently, but rather to, and to remove all liberty, but rather to make sure that fastidiously they obeyed the law plus. So it was the law plus, and these were the kind of guys. And so that I feel like they just took graffiti and they wrote all over Scripture with their ideas of what the Scriptures taught, and they gave principles that they thought were even better than how Jesus would have taught or how the law taught. And so Jesus, in verse 14 of chapter 2, is heading to the coast, getting some fresh air. As he finishes up teaching, he hits a crossroad there in verse 14, and he noticed a tax booth, a tax booth set up on a corner. And there was a guy in there by the name of Levi. So he's gone to the beach, got his feet wet, got some fresh sea air, goes to a crossroad, see a ta- sees a tax booth and think, aha, I got a team member there. And he struns, stuns the crowd there in verse 14 and he calls Levi to follow him. Levi is also Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He's a tax collector. Now, when you just read this, you can quickly pass by it and miss how significant a choice this is and how scandalous a choice this is. Levi was not of their tribe. (laughs) Uh, He was from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, He would have been a scandalous pick to be a close disciple of Jesus, a Jew, yet he uses this guy in his ordinariness, in his scandalous lifestyle to write a gospel and to be a close follower of the mission. Now we need to unpack Levi's life and career path to really appreciate how crazy uh, the choice is before us. The text says in verse 14, he's the son of Alphaeus. Most of uh, the guys in this role would have been lawyers. Alphaeus was a lawyer. Two names he has, Matthew and Levi. This is common. Paul was Saul. Simon became Peter. This is very common in the first century. Nothing confusing in the text. Rather pedestrian. He passed by, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, coming, you know, and uh, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, the choice as a tax collector is what becomes scandalous. Uh, They probably dubbed him low-life Levi. That's how they would have perceived as they approached this tax booth, Levi. And basically, Levi was a loan shark. He was a turncoat. He would sell out his national identity to work for Rome in particular. People despised the imperial power of Rome. And so these certain Jewish men were running a franchise for Herod Antipas. They would collect taxes. They would bid, and the highest bidder would get the booth. And there would be a margin set by Herod Antipas, and anything you raised above that margin, you kept. So you had a quota, and you would raise to the quota. Anything above that, uh, you would keep, and it would become your means of income. 
And so that's how Rome worked. It was a get-rich-quick scheme by oppressive taxation. And you could see how the people could not stand. So this is one of their own Jewish men who sells out to Rome and exploits basically all the people who come by and makes a ton of money. So the more he exploited, the more money uh, he would make. This is the context for, for this choice. So they would gain. It was uh, extortion, greed, dishonesty, and a host of other sins that seem to uh, be labeled those who are tax collectors. Being a tax collector was being like a leper. You were an outsider, unclean, and you'd add to that thievery. You were viewed as a, a criminal, a thief. And they would set up booths at these crossroads where everyone would have to pass by. And there were three taxes. There was a poll tax, a ground tax, and an income tax. And then they would continue to make up taxes. And so there was tremendous social costs for a Levi to yield to work for Rome. He gave up relationship to his people. He, he became a scoundrel. He became a lowlife. And so Jesus leaves the ocean, shows up at the tax booth and says, that's the guy I want to lead with. I can't tell you how scandalous that would have been to the disciples because the disciples here to four have been fishermen. We've, we've been introduced to them in Mark 1 already and, and you see they're, they're common fishermen. One has a little better, bigger business than the other. One had a boat, one did not. And, and, and you see those first four and you're thinking, okay, they're common fishermen. I can work with them. They understand fishing. They're athletic. They're kind of tough. This guy is doughy, sitting in a booth, extorting his own neighbors, the people he grew up with, the, 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 the guys he went to school with. This is completely scandalous. This is completely out of character. They would have been despised like moles and informants in the Nazi regime in World War II. They were refused access to the local synagogue. They were not allowed to worship with the people. They were completely outsiders. They were completely, they completely declared they're in it for the money. I want you to know when you read verse 14, it comes alive. It goes from black and white to HD when you understand how significant that the Son of God in this choice, how significant a choice it would be for the Son of God to pick this kind of guy to be on his A team. Right? And there is no plan B, folks. This is the team. And this is absolutely amazing. Of all the people in Capernaum, Levi was the most unlikely disciple, and that's exactly what Jesus loves. Pick the unlikely guy, Jesus gets maximum glory as he becomes a trophy of God's grace, as he yields his life to Christ, walks away from extortion, and now serves up the gospel. This is the plan. Frankly, this was scandalous with all caps. Everyone thought Levi should get the full wrath of God and not be put on the A-team. Condemnation is what Levi should have, but Jesus sees otherwise. And this becomes a trademark for Jesus' ministry. Jesus always saw what you can become in Christ, just like he does today. When he reaches down and he pursues you and chases you, you would have never chosen him on your own. He chose you and puts you on the team. And the same 
thing is happening over and over again and likely will happen this morning, even in this hour or next. The Levi's of the world. When we look in the mirror, mirror, we see Levi. We see ourselves. It's an unlikely disciple, scandalous. This is exactly how the Lord found me at 21 years old. I had a perm and highlights. 1986. I mean, smoking cigarettes, cussing like a sailor in the Navy. I just watched Top Gun, which came out in May, and I was trying to replicate that apart from the looks. And I mean, you, and God, out of nowhere, I'm on the beach playing volleyball, and two girls walk up and share Christ. And I get radically saved. And here I stand. Unlikely disciple. Just like you. Unlikely disciples. This is how it works. God delights in saving ordinary, crazy, wild people to put them out as a trophy of His grace so they don't get any glory because they could have never done that on their own. That Jesus gets maximum glory for changing lives. This is the case with Levi. Look at Levi's response. Look at it. He said to him, follow me. He got up and followed him. I mean, who can demand that kind of radical commitment? He did it in chapter 1 with the guys fishing, which was huge in an agrarian culture. You know, to walk away from the family fishing business was to walk away from all economic stability. It was a big deal. So Levi, who's making a ton of cash, literally gets out of the booth and walks away. Unlike the other four disciples in Mark 1, they could always go back to fishing. Once you walked away from Rome, you were cut off, never to return again. So it was a complete severing of economic choice. Jesus had winsome authority, called out radical commitment, and Levi burns the bridge with Rome. Jesus was a friend to sinners like the disrespectful, extortionist Levi. The principle is the same for us today. We, as a local church, must be friend to sinners. This is our calling. This is why you're here. To live on mission is to live and love sinners. You don't get all worked up about their sin. Why? Because sinners are supposed to sin. That's what sinners do. I hate to state the obvious here. Call me crazy. Sinners are supposed to sin, right? So you're to befriend them. Isolationism isn't a, isn't a biblical concept. Jesus didn't hang out in a monastery and fortify himself. He was walking about right up to a tax booth at the beach in someone's house. And we're going to see what, how religious people view this because I think there's a little bit of that in all of us if we're not careful that we make accusation towards someone that actually would deploy a Jesus-like strategy. So the first part of a biblical philosophy of ministry and personal evangelism is this. You and I must love sinners. Do you love sinners? Do you love your neighbor when he tries to hedge on the fence line? You know, uh, do, you, do you love the neighbor who walks a dog and doesn't pick up the mess? Do you love these people? Do you love your city? Do you love Kansas City? I know you love your barbecue, and I appreciate it too. Oklahoma Joe's yesterday, awesome, changed my life. I do appreciate that, okay? But do you love your city, right? This is how Jesus thought. And, and 
picking unlikely people. This whole church is full of unlikely people, but we get comfortable. We get all dolled up, and we dress up, and we look the part. And I wonder if we go home and think, who's coming over to my house for Super Bowl tonight? Oh, sorry, you're having church. <laughs> or at least Rick's having church. The rest of us are watching the Super Bowl, right? Let's <laughs> all raise our hands. All right, good. I appreciate the confession. I appreciate the three of you that are honest, too, on that deal. Second philosophy of ministry. Be an antagonist to the self-righteous. You must be an antagonist to the self-righteous. Not only do you need to love the sinner, but you have to go and become an antagonist to the self-righteous. In verses 15 and 16, the scene changes. Levi, having capital and net worth, had a huge house built. And he's so thrilled about his new salvation and calling to be on the team He wants his fellow buddies to come over and to meet Jesus and to have a meal. Jesus loves having meals with sinners. And so he gathers all of his tax collector buddies together, and they gather under Levi's roof to celebrate his conversion and to meet the guy that changed his life. This was a big deal for Levi and a big deal for Jesus It was a time of celebration, but he also saw it as a time of evangelism. It was so good. It was so life-changing. He wanted to introduce others to the gospel. Folks, it's how it's supposed to be. So Jesus goes to eat with all the social outcasts in the the region. It's, It's one thing to pick one of the guys out as you're walking through a crossroads and call him, but he gets them all together in the house. So he rallies and sends word and all of them together. This is like a, a crazy, scandalous crowd of, of, of guys, totally unpredictable. No rabbi in that time would dare eat with a household of tax collectors, social outcasts. This blew people's minds, as you're about to see. They don't even have a category for this. It's a scandal of all scandals. It's a scandal of grace. It flew in the face of the religious elite who were keeping tabs on Jesus and looking to trip him up. Tell you what, grace welcomes. The gospel welcomes the enemies of God and certainly includes whatever the world excludes. The world might hate them. The religious elite might hate them. The gospel is an open door to change their lives. Folks, you don't run from the culture You don't fortify yourselves from this culture. You transform it by pushing back the darkness, by having people over in your home, and by spending time with people proclaiming the gospel. He's about to turn strangers, sinful strangers, into gospel friends. And you see it in verse 15. And and many were following him. Had he not shown up because of worrying about his reputation or worried about what other people in the church might think, then this would have never taken place. But because he chose to go to this party with a bunch of heathens, you see the grace of God on full display. They were, as verse 15 says, celebrating the conversion and and calling of Matthew. And you can see the picture here, uh, them reclining. And this is how they would eat a meal. They would do it laying down. They would lean on their left shoulder. Feet would be out. 
everyone's head and left shoulder would be into the center where the food would be, and they would lean on their left shoulder and reach in with their right arm. Obviously, why would they keep their feet out? Because they wore sandals. They were dirty. And so that's just the way it worked, and that's why you have the washing of the disciples' feet. This is the posture they're in. So they're all leaning into this big, massive spread of food celebrating uh, Levi's conversion. Many were there, the text says. The large home, and I promise you, this would not be a crowd you'd ever see in the synagogue. You see, you can invite people to the local church, and you should, but they don't just naturally come. Usually, it happens because they're your neighbor, and you've spent time, and you've planted seed after seed after seed. These people weren't even welcome in the synagogue. They would have never shown up in the synagogue to, to hear the rabbis teach and to hear the gospel proclaimed. They would have never done that. They would have never stepped foot in the door. You have to go to them. <clears throat> you have to go out. We don't gather. We don't go to church. We are the church. When you go home this afternoon, you are the church. In your neighborhood, you are the church. This is just where we gather in community and worship and, and do all the disciplines and corporate disciplines that are expected of us in, in the scriptures. But when we go out of these doors, we enter the mission field and we become the church to these people. It was an odious turnout arch enemies of the religious elite sitting around the table. And by the way, when you think about hospitality uh, in the New Testament, hospitality is, is always turning strangers into friends. We think of hospitality as often you know, being hospitable to each other in community. No, hospitality is always, its object is always strangers. That's it by definition. And so even the elders... And we talked about this some yesterday when we had an extended meeting together. Strangers, elders are supposed to be hospitable. It's one of the qualities of a, of a faithful gospel leader. That means you love strangers. You don't hide out and think, oh, my wicked neighbors. You, you, you go after them. That's, that's what it is. You take, it turns strangers into friends, enemies into, into gospel servants. These guys all used extortion, gambling. I mean, these guys were, were a ragtag bunch. Raising doves for sport. They would have damned them. They would not have ever dined with them. No way. Not a chance in this lifetime. So Jesus is inviting them to his party. It's called the new creation, and it's called come as you are. You just show up. A whole sinner. Get introduced to Jesus Christ and have your life rocked forever. This is what Levi's experiencing. And Levi says, it's so good, I'm going to have my friends experience. And that's exactly what they do. But you still have these guys on the fringe. The religious elite. The ones that are real fastidious with all the rules, right? So, verse 16, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating and drinking with sinners... And tax collectors, they said to his disciples, note that, underline that, they're a bunch of cowards, chicken little. They're not even going to talk to Jesus. Hey, can we have a word with you? Rabbi? Come here. No, no. They call his disciples out. Jesus is sitting in the middle of the table, macking down on some grapes and rocking people's world. They're outside calling the disciples and saying, hey, what's going on there? Why, why would the rabbi do this? 
what do we got? We got some problem here. Religious people don't do this. We don't, we don't eat with sinners. We don't associate with unbelievers. We, we don't associate with these kind of people. What are you doing? This is a scandal of all scandals. It's going to wreck it, and I promise you, it's going to cost him his life. That's what they were thinking. The scribes and Pharisees try to set him up, try to trap him. And I guarantee they're using Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. And blah, blah, blah. You know, they're quoting scripture, bang. You know, and Jesus is like, oh, really? Yeah, it's fascinating. Nice out of context, Skippy. <laughs> Jesus is reclining and sharing the gospel. They're outside fussing and shuffling their feet, making no difference in the world, and binding people's consciences, and not even sharing a clear gospel. They don't even realize their gross error. Have they forgotten that they're all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God? Have they forgotten Luke 19.10 that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost? That's why Jesus called the religious elite unmarked graves, right? Because they thought that the Bible taught separatists. Separatists. Separate out from people. Fortify. Join a monastery. You know, and, and do all of that. They saw them as inferior, not as objects of God's grace, not as a mission field, just the opposite. And they were afraid to confront Jesus, so they call them out, and in their self-righteous, smug attitudes, ask the disciples, what is going on in there? And I promise you, this is still happening today. It's happening in churches all over our fine country. We have our own neo-pharisaical beliefs, our neo-scribe-like beliefs, just like these guys. Can't do this, you can't do that. And we sit there and read this text and have disdain and loathe the scribes and Pharisees, and we turn around and do it every single Sunday. Or worse, every single Monday to Saturday when we should be in the, in the community proclaiming Christ and having meal after meal and using our houses, which are massive in size, for the glory of God, we shut our doors, doors, we make it pretty, and our neighbors are going to hell. That's the stark reality. We seek out people of our own tribe. We make fun of people who are on the same team but different tribe. They're not like us. We arrange our lives around avoiding unbelievers. One of the great sadnesses as a pastor for my congregation is the mindset that we eat dinner with Christians, we go to Christian doctors, we have Christian schools, we have Christian dentists. Dennis, sorry Richard. I apologize for that. Watch Christian horse racing. You don't do that. We're from Kentucky. We don't gamble. Hire Christian plumbers, go to Christian gyms, adopt Christian cats and dogs. I mean, give me a break. If I was, I tell our church, don't do anything in the Christian context. Don't, don't, don't hire anybody. Have the plumber over, and while he's working, share Christ with the guy. Good golly. I mean, give me a break. What did Jesus say in John 17? My prayer is not that you, are, you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the world. You'd deliver them from the evil one, right? You're, you're saved, taken out of the world, changed, converted, put right back in the world to be on mission and to live on mission. 
We're not to isolate ourselves, but we're also not to assimilate into the world. There's a tension there. We don't isolate, we don't assimilate. We transform, just like Jesus did. You go into a dinner, and it's crazy, and the crowd's crazy, and you just boldly, with conviction, articulate the pristine and powerful gospel and watch it work. It is powerful, folks. Unleash it. This is a critical understanding for a local church. We gather, we huddle, while our city goes to hell. I'm telling you, we are most like Jesus this morning when we're friends with sinners. This is how he rolled. This is how he lived. Look at it. Read the scriptures. Read the gospels this week. Plow through Mark. It's an easy read. One hour. Plow through Mark and just circle all the times he's eating and hanging out with unbelievers. That's how Jesus lived. Right? Not in isolation. It's okay to earn the label, hey, he hangs out with sinners. He goes to that unbelieving gym. We're called to be salt and light. And if salt loses its saltiness, its, its influence, it's good for nothing. And that's what a lot of churches are, good for nothing. Not making a difference, not changing, seeing anybody converted, not seeing lives changed. I'm so thankful for a church in 1986 that was red hot, on fire for Jesus, had a college group that was red hot, and sent people to the beach to tell people about Jesus while throwing the frisbee and while having a good time. Okay? Suppose you were to go to Five Guys this afternoon and President Obama was in town and you see Rick and I having a burger with him because that's his favorite restaurant. Fries are good in the bag. It's awesome. Not as good as Oklahoma Joe's, but it's awesome. You know. And you'd see Rick and I sitting there hanging out, laughing, Having the blast. Ordering extra fries. Sweet tea. Just having the time of our lives. And you walked up as a family and went, what in the world is Rick Holland, our pastor, doing meeting with the President of the United States? This is the, this is the first sitting president that addressed Planned Parenthood. This is the first sitting president that went public on the gay marriage rights. I mean, this is a big issue here sociologically, and you see us eating with it, would you go, what is he doing? Or would you say, that is so cool, so awesome, because you know what he's doing is being winsome and sharing the gospel with our president. Or do you just throw rocks at him rather than pray for him? See what I'm saying? That's the kind of feel that this text has. We can't afford to get this wrong, folks. We need to be known as a church for being a friend of sinners, you also want to be the place that God knows He can send them to you. Tattoos, crazy nose rings, pink hair, purple hair, wild dresses, short dresses, long dresses, and they just come in and you just disciple them. Share Christ with them. Win them to Christ. Call me crazy. Wouldn't that be awesome? You want to be the place that God says, hey, I can count on Mission Road Bible Church because they're going to put a dent in the city. I guarantee they show up and people are not going to judge. They're going to proclaim, winsome, proclaiming the gospel. You must stop seeing people as holy and unholy. 
as social outcasts and see them as opportunity, objects of God's love, objects of God's grace, redemptive in nature, calling them. Jesus was an antagonist to the smug righteousness. I challenge you to be also. Third, Jesus is a healer to the sick. Look at verse 17. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, and here's that parable I was telling you about in the beginning, that he answers every crazy question from the peripheral leaders. And hearing this, he said, hey, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. They asked the critical question. Jesus responds axiomatically with a ministry-shaping response. I didn't come for good people. I came for bad people. You see, bad people need the gospel. And oh, by the way, you are all bad people. I am a bad pastor. Bad pastor. I mean, that is the reality of this deal. Oh, I can clean up and dress up, but I'm telling you, Jeremiah 17, 9 is true. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? You don't even know your own heart. You think, I hear people say all the time in counsel, and they're like, oh, I don't know about that, but I know my own heart. I'm thinking, no, you don't, Skippy. You are so far out in left field, you don't have a clue. Yeah, we're all sin-sick, Satan-serving sinners. Welcome to the club. Is this church going to be a hotel for saints or a hospital for sinners? That is the question in the text. That's where this text lands. That's where it's going. What good is a doctor to healthy people? Now, Richard would say, you should floss. I get it. I'm there. Whatever. Whatever. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, right? Jesus turns the tables, and he defines, in this text, the mission for all of us. We go to sinners, to the sick, to the hurting. Jesus didn't die for the self-righteous, elite, smug feigning holy people. You have the word of God, but you hide it? You have the light of the world, but you hide it under a bushel? That is crazy. Hospitality and love for sinners with Marcus as a local church. Jesus gives this defining statement in verse 17. It is so liberating and so helpful it's so defining for how we are to live on mission so let me help you with some practical steps and we'll wrap this up here we got a few minutes left so i'm going to move into the i dare you double dog dare you section of my preaching here it is i dare you to view your neighbors co-workers families through jesus's eyes Jesus didn't spend his life in a monastery, you know that. Pulling guys out of booths that everyone hated. I dare you to be accused of mixing with the wrong crowd. Running with the wrong people. Now you need to be running with the wrong people for the right reason. Little footnote. But Jesus came eating and drinking, right? They said he was a glut. He ate so much and he partied so much, they accused him of gluttony and excess. That's your savior. When he walked on this planet, that's what he did. That was the plan. I challenge you to take advantage of your home 
and to deploy it for the gospel. You've got so many extra bedrooms, it's creepy. I mean, honestly. Let's use our homes for the glory of God. And ladies, you don't have to get it all. You can put up two lawn chairs in a living room and have community, okay? You don't have to get it all perfect. See, a lot of people spend their lives, you know, a, you know trying to aim the gun. They never actually take a shot. Take a shot. Invite your neighbors over. You get three squares a day. So let's do some math. That's 21 meals a week. That's 21 gospel opportunities this next week. Use one. I'm just asking. Use one for a coworker, for a family member. Do, doing lunch is doing theology. Next, I challenge you to be willing to cross the tracks and care for the least of these. Could be a depressed part of town. Uh, could be an unwed mother. Um, could be orphanage. Orphans, the least of these. I challenge you to go to the least of these. That's where Jesus pointed his ministry. We're in Kansas, so host a barbecue for unbelievers. Now, it's a little cool outside, so remind me to wait a little bit, or you can bring in Oklahoma Joe's, I'm sure. But invite a couple couples in the church and a couple couples in your neighborhood and have them over for barbecue. Don't be weird, you know. Don't get into the conversation in the first five minutes. So where do you go to church? I don't see you leaving on Sundays, cars in the garage. Going to hell? You're going to rock hell big time. Big time. Lo and behold, you find out they actually go Sunday night church because, you know, Jesus didn't go on Sunday morning. He went Sunday nights. He actually went Saturday. That might blow your mind. That might have just pushed you over the edge. I'm sorry. Okay, hold. Be winsome, not weird, all right? Let's not be weird. Be winsome. Have them over. That's what I do with our neighbors. Our neighbors love us. And, and we go to their house for dinner and the kids play and they come to our house. And I mean, we are just working, working, working hard and proclaiming the gospel to them. And they're getting closer and closer and the questions are coming and coming and the books are flying and flying. It's just a matter of time where God works and, and saves them. Jesus came for losers. Right? And those on the margins of life. Think about that. You don't have to host elaborate, expensive events. This isn't a big cash outlay. You can order Jimmy John's. They deliver to your house. Get a Slim. It's $2.99. This is not complex. Get a two-liter. It'll go flat in a week, but still, you can deploy it the same. All right? This isn't rocket science, folks. Lastly, remember God's indiscriminate, so be like God. Be like Jesus. Jesus' mission Saturday was a long meal with sinners. That's it. That's it. That's what he did. And then he's accused of scandal. Go and do likewise is the challenge from this text. Be an evangelist. Host evangelistic Bible studies. Scatter gatherings. Get people in. Once a month, take your small groups and turn and say, we're not going to just have another meal and pray about Aunt Beth's corns and be silly. We're going to actually pivot and say, man, we're going we're to try to reach our neighbors. Be a friend of sinners and, and wear the label well when people accuse you of such. As we close, you have really kind of two options. Option one is that you will continue to be a modern Pharisee and continue to look at people who are putting a dent 
in this world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think you should be suspicious about where you're at spiritually. That's why it's spiritual saltiness. Option two, we become a well-lit, salty people who, by the way, have the hope of the world, the gospel, in possession. And we'd use our saltiness, our influence for the gospel, and we would push back decay, and we'd push back darkness with the light of the gospel. That was the two metaphors, saltiness, saltiness, Stops decay. Light pushes back darkness. That's who we are. When we're living on mission, we're, we're influencing decay in our community and we're pushing back darkness. That's the question around the dinner table tonight. Actually, after the game. You should sit down and talk. Are, my, are we as a family pushing back darkness and are we salty? Do we influence? we stop decay? Are we sodium chloride for the glory of God as a family? To do nothing with this text? Lame. Real lame. All right? Let's pray together and get our hearts ready for the next hour. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for Jesus' philosophy of ministry. We ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.